0: To hear more about Sparklab, including details about the latest events, workshops and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound.
1: Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to Business is Boring you will have seen their clothes. Optimistic block colour hoodies and shirts perhaps, with a little paragraph of writing on the right upper middle that tells you the story of the garment, that it is from recycled materials, consuming less water and fewer resources maybe. The clothes are from Pangaya, a material science brand that sells fashion to support its research into better materials and methods of production and retail. It's a global leader in better fashion practice, and today we are joined by one of its executives, Eva Cruz, who herself is a pioneer in sustainable fashion. Her work spearheading the Copenhagen Fashion Summit and Global Fashion Agenda has helped fan and foster the sustainable fashion movement globally. Eva was in town with the Spark Future State series and joins us now to chat her work, Conscious Choices and the Future. Tanakwe, thank you for joining us, Eva.
2: Well, thank you for having me. Hey, so first up, how did you become
1: interested in fashion? So you were a writer and editor first, right?
2: Yeah, I was actually a TV presenter. Um, and I, the first show I got was, um, was a talk show. And then the next one was a fashion show. And at the time, I came at it from a journalistic lens. I guess like you right now, Simon is sort of inquiring about sustainability and fashion. Um, so I was asking the questions that a normal journalist would to the designers: So what's the new trends? What, what are we going to see? And then eventually, you know, if you do that for a long time, you kind of become, you know, an expert in it as well. Um, so I sort of grew into the industry from the media side. I then became an editor-in-chief of a fashion magazine. And, yeah, continued to sort of be, be part of the industry from the media side. Um, and then eventually around 2003, 2004... We were a little group of people who looked at the potential for the Danish and the Scandinavian fashion industry to actually sort of grow into what you can call the competency cluster, you know, use the strengths of a lot of the small, incredibly talented designers, and then a pretty big, sort of slightly boring, but big commercial um, part of the industry that did a lot of, you know, just regular boring products that that had a big export. and when we lifted at that, we had critical mass to actually maybe create a proper fashion week and make Copenhagen a destination for fashion. And that led to us setting up Copenhagen Fashion Week, which had nothing to do with sustainability at the time, but it was just about promoting products, promoting a new waist length, <laughs> well, you know, a new color um, and uh, yeah and 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 yeah, and just simply putting. The creativity and design at center.
1: That's so cool. As you know, anyone interested in fashion knows what a center of fashion Copenhagen is now, and also, you know, the impact and influence of the week and summit that you that you made happen. And I think, you know, it's probably probably the the most associated such event with sustainability. And that's interesting. It didn't start out that way. So tell me about how you became more interested and how that became more and more
2: a focus of your work. So Copenhagen Fashion Week was a baby of an organisation behind it called the Danish Fashion Institute. The Danish Fashion Institute was a network where we gathered all the businesses, the large ones and the small ones, and we gathered them around topics that we thought would be helpful for the industry to dive into. And we spoke about exports, or how do you promote your brand, and how do you build great, you know, strategies, and so on. And along the way, we, um, we also started thinking a little bit about CSR, which is what sustainability was called back then, Corporate Social Responsibility. And this is in the this it's still in the, in the 2000, 2005, 6, 7, around that time. One of the trigger points for me at the moment um, was Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. To remember, he that came out with a film, which was probably the first time that we sort of in the public space got an understanding about climate change and sort of started having a common sense around that there's something happening here and that we're all contributing to it. And I thought, what about the fashion industry? You wonder what that impact is. And nobody knew. But there was no global assessments, nothing that cut across. We knew that the industry had outsourced its supply chain in the 80s and 70s. And that goes for most Western, like especially Global North companies and Western world companies. And... We knew that there was difficulties or maybe I would say worse, you know, really big challenges on social implications in terms of child labor, slave labor, sweatshops. But it wasn't sort of assessed fully. We didn't fully understand the impact of the issue. We knew there was something around chemicals. I remember a couple of cases with some products that didn't pass tests coming into Denmark. But I was just curious, what, what about this industry? And I remember we brought it to the attention of the fashion industry and we set up seminars and, we, and they got really frightened that, in the beginning because most of them, and these are small, medium-sized companies, they didn't have visibility to their entire supply chain. They maybe knew first tier. They usually worked with agents, second tier maybe. They had no idea where things came from. They had absolutely no idea where, buttons, zippers and stuff like that came from. They probably didn't even know where a lot of the things that was coming into their products, where they actually came from, from origin. And textbook page one in sustainability is transparency. So knowing, having transparency all the way through your supply chain and traceability that you can trace. And nowadays we need it all the way to the fiber, actually down to the field. So to the source of everything, but at this time, we were just scratching the surface. And then in addition, um, Copenhagen was going to host the UN um, Climate Summit, COP15. We're at COP28, that just happened in Dubai in, um, in 2023. And um, the next one will be in Azerbaijan, COP29. Tw- yeah, COP <laughs> um, and this was COP15. And it was going to happen in 2009 in Copenhagen. And I had visibility to the program coming together. And I could see there's so many exciting industries, especially from consumer goods and beauty sector, like Unilevers and Procter & Gamble and so on, were part of it. Nobody from fashion. And I thought that's really peculiar because we, we knew that it was one of the world's largest industries. And even though we didn't have any sort of exact figures or assessments on how, of the impact of the industry environmentally, we knew that it was you know, a big a big contributor in many ways because of its scale, at least just the scale and size of things. And because of the huge extraction of natural resources into its supply chain. So we thought maybe it's because the fashion industry doesn't feel familiar with these political convenings. And at the time it was also a smaller event than it is nowadays where much more of, of industries are contributing and taking part in these political convenings. So we decided to make a summit, but we made it separate as a side event to the official union gathering. So we booked the opera house. It's a beautiful building in Copenhagen by the water. So we we thought, okay, we better have a beautiful location for the fashion industry that's very aesthetic and you know concerned with these things. We asked um, our Tasmanian um, Crown Princess Mary <laughs> if she would be if she would be our host and her, our patron. She's now Queen Mary. I think you guys know that, right? That we have an Australian um, queen in Denmark. So, uh, so she and she accepted to support the event. And um, we pulled in everything we could from, you know, celebrity writers and a lot of the network that the Fashion Week had and, you know, cool stylists and photographers. And we hosted a show. And then we basically invited the industry to join us for a conversation about the hardcore environmental and social impacts of our industry. So I think we wrapped it up in something that made it feel safe, but then asking them t- to swallow a pill they weren't ready for. We actually managed, even for the first event, to gather critical mass of some of the leading businesses and industry leaders, and it actually went really well. So even though they might not have been fully prepared for the, for the topics and the pill we wanted them to swallow, they they were, they, they were more engaged than I could have hoped for, and it, it sparked for us a, you know, a, th- a thinking that this was not just supposed to be a one-off, but it had to be a continued event, that we would continue to gather people and continue to push this conversation, and that became the foundation for the Copenhagen Fashion Summit, which today is called the Global Fashion Summit, Copenhagen Edition. Because it also now travels and is happening in other cities across the world. Yeah, that's so
1: interesting that you know your observation that you make that people just had no idea. That is so recent as well. Because I remember looking into fashion here uh, in New Zealand, uh, you know, ten to fifteen years ago, and being amazed that we could know as consumers, like you know, there were measures to tell us the animal welfare of the chickens laying mm-hmm. our eggs. yeah. But there was no way to know the conditions of the people who had grown the cotton, the people who had bleached and uh, treated um, fabrics, the people who had made the clothes, and any of the environmental implications along the way either. And it's amazing how much has changed in such a short time, you know, in large part, thanks to the advocacy of organisations like yours.
2: Yeah, I think it was, what happens often in situations like this is that you're not alone. And I don't know how to translate this word into English, but Zeitgeist, it means the spirit of time in German. (laughs) But it sort of captures that when something like this happens, and it happened in Copenhagen, and, and there is, of course, an international crowd of attendees, but it also happened in other places of the world. So at the same time in the U.S., we saw Sustainable Apparel Coalition coming together, an initiative taken by Walmart and Patagonia, two odd couples coming together and saying, let's find ways to work together as industries and also working on, on the supply chain side of things. And, and I, so we saw sort of it appear from different sides. And I think that's, you know, collectively is, what you, is how a movement is begun.
1: And and that's so interesting, as you say. It's a, it's a movement. It's a group of people together. And how was it that then the Fashion Week and the fashion activities around Copenhagen became kind of a real centre for better materials, better sustainable fashion practice, better production? How did that come to be a thing?
2: So, as I was... When we first kicked off the Copenhagen Fashion Summit and eventually then turned the Danish Fashion Institute into the global fashion agenda and became a globally faced organization and not focusing on Denmark. I was also CEO of Copenhagen Fashion Week. And so there was already sort of a synergy and it was many of the same team members. Eventually, we decided to separate the sustainability efforts from the Fashion Week because at the time, they we it, we, it wasn't really um, possible for us to sort of align them fully because a Fashion Week essentially is about selling product, pushing more product into the market and you know getting people to buy more and it was somewhat contradictory to the whole um, thinking that we with sustainability also have to look at overproduction, overconsumption, over consumption and maybe not just constantly pushing um, new products. Um, Today my successor Cecilia Torsmark um, who was also part of the Danish Fashion Institute and, and Summit teams since, yeah, early on, she has actually managed to take Copenhagen Fashion Week and turn it into the most sustainable platform also in terms of the commercial side of things. So, you know, she's really done what we weren't able to do in the early days. Um, and, and I think jointly, the two, um, what do you call it, events complemented each other. And they both became sort of lighthouses that could be seen across the world and could attract international attention, both from buyers, from other brands, from innovations that presents new material science, from media and so on. Um, And today, yeah, so they cross-pollinate, you could say. Yeah, and the point
1: you make there that... Fashion Weeks are all about, you know, (laughs) just selling things. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. I've seen that you've observed in the past about, you you know, the inherent parts of fashion that are unsustainable. Uh, Seasons, discounting. This idea that clothes that were great five minutes ago are now 70% off because a new season's coming in. The winter season arrives in summer. You know, like it's absolutely bonkers in many ways the way it's set up, right?
2: absolutely bonkers and honestly I think a lot of the systems that are in that the fashion industry is suffering from we are we've created them ourselves and we, we it is an industry that is driven from this sense of newness and that everything that's new and young and fresh and all of that is good and things that are old and could be reused is not and that is really very contradictory to where we need to go On a global scale if we're going to achieve some kind of net zero um, on carbon emissions and how we're exploitive on nature and so on. So I've always looked at this industry and and thought, okay, if we can change that industry, of all industries in the world, we can change all of them. Because if we can in fact make an industry that is really driven from, you know, no point of, of sustainability and into a point of actually making products last longer, be better, made better, made with less extraction from nature, um, then we can succeed a lot because fashion is also a strong communication tool. It blends in with culture, with pop culture, film, music, you know, people, even people who don't say they follow fashion, they follow fashion because it's in the times and it's in, it's in media, it's in, you know, it's in our society. So it's really inevitable um, to be affected by it to some degree. Um, so, so, I, so I think there's, you know, it's, it's a really interesting case to see how can you actually make fashion um, more lasting. And I think one of the biggest issues with, with fashion industry is this wastefulness. The fact that we, that we can't use products for very long. Um, we've even created silly, silly systems where we put early products, so that we put pre-spring season products into the market during winter which makes the winter products that were perfect for the season, ready on the shelf, already out of date. And it means that we're marking down products that could have been sold at a, at a better price for business and also maybe making consumers buy a little less because we simply can't continue to consume for this, this hunt for constant um, markdowns and just constantly hunting for, 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 yeah, for, for lower price it's part of scrutinizing the whole system. And unfortunately, it still is a good business model for many businesses to overproduce and mark down their products. But it isn't helping where we need to go, where we shouldn't overconsume and, and over um, overproduce.
1: And we'll be back in a moment with Eva to talk about her work at Pangaea, a company working to make better materials and methods in fashion production.
0: Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network
1: and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more.
0: Maya No. Welcome back to
1: Business Is Boring. So tell us Eva about your work with Pangaia, as you mentioned there that, you know, if if you can make fashion, if you if you can help be part of things that make fashion a force for advancing a conversation and showing how things can be better, it can be really impactful, right? So what does that company do? And a lot of people would be familiar with the clothes as they're very distinctive with the wee messages on the you know, upper right uh, uh, front. Um, but yeah, what, what, what's the story behind that company?
2: So Pangaea was actually born into the world as a material science company. If you look at the impact of the fashion industry the absolute biggest environmental footprint comes from the materials. It's the material sourcing, which in, in, in the case of natural fibers means, for instance, cotton that you source from a field. And even though cotton is a natural fiber and many people will think, oh, it's a good thing. You know, cotton is natural. It is the very land intensive um, fiber. It's, it's one of the thirstiest crops in the world. So it takes a lot of water and we don't have a lot of that on the planet. And it's the the one crop in the world that uses the most pesticides, which we also know is killing the pollinators and, you know, killing a lot of biodiversity. So it's really not necessarily a good thing if it's, if it isn't grown in the right way. So the environmental footprint could come from, you know, the sourcing of natural fibers, but also, of course, from the sourcing of a lot of synthetics. More than 60% of fashion is actually made from fossil fuel. So it's, Synthetic polyesters and nylon. And even if you hear a lot about people recycling polyesters nowadays, it's still polyester. It's still plastic. it still threads microfibers that ends up in oceans and they come into the bodies of all of us and it's in our foods and in our children and so on. So we need to look at the material input. It's also the processing of materials that has a big footprint in terms of water, wastewater, chemicals, dyes. That are polluting rivers, you know. It's killing biodiversity, fish life, marine life. Um, we see people around um, developing countries that are walking with bare feet in in big jars with dying, fa- fa- you know, for fabrics and so on. So it's it's a massively polluting um, industry on the environmental side. So Pangaea was born with the lens that we can make products better if we change the materials, if we simply produce with a different material input. And that can be anything from, in the case of cotton, a lot of our cotton is either recycled cotton, or if it is a virgin fiber, it will be regenerative. Organic is what we've been able to source the most. Regenerative is this new way, I was about to say, of growing. It's actually the ancient way of growing, where you protect nature, where you where you have cover crops, where you don't till the soil, where you don't spray with pesticides, where you simply make sure that the cotton crop is is part of an ecosystem and is part of of protecting the bigger biodiversity picture. So, um, but it can also be sourcing nettle or or hemp that you can blend and turn into amazing fibers um, and denim blend with cotton. Um, We also have fruit waste and plant waste that can be turned into incredible fibers or seaweed fiber from, from the ocean. So lots of natural fibers, but that has a completely different footprint. Um, and then, of course, the, we focus a lot also on the more, you can say, technical, innovative replacements for nylon and synthetics that are bio-based so that they will biodegrade. Um, and there's a lot of innovations happening in that space different ways of dyeing, using bacteria. And then if you want to have a couple of examples of sort of um, more blue sky thinking, which is actually not thinking, it is actually happening. Um, 3D printed shoes made with a recycled input, 3D printed sunglasses, or we also did a couple of products that were actually what we would call earth positive, which means that we've taken something that was a problem and turned it into um, a product. So we did sunglasses with an incredible company called 12 that takes and sequesters carbon from the air, turns it into a material. I can't explain to you why I'm not a scientist, Uh, but they turn it into material that you can then create a pair of sunglasses from. Um, We also did a collection where the print that you mentioned on the front of our product, which is a signature of Pangaea's because we want people to know what their products are made of. So we printed it outside the product instead of on a small tag that nobody reads. Um, But we made the print with a a company called Air Ink. And Air Ink is actually also um, carbon. uh, So they suck out pollution from the air and turn it into an ink that you can actually print with.
1: That's so cool. And it's so important to be putting a spotlight on how things can be made better as it kind of feels like, the work of organisations like the Global Fashion Agenda and the like had helped to make sure that, especially fast fashion, that was such a force in the world for uh, the negative things, had started to report on its impact and had increased its oversight of its, um, you, you know, supply chain, and had you know done a lot to actually improve, but then. The kind of new big force in the world, things like Shine and Temu and Wish, yeah. all of these big forces in fast fashion today are outside of that framework. And so we're back in a situation where the biggest influences or the, the fastest growing parts of the fashion industry are back outside the tent.
2: you yeah, absolutely right. And it's really it's tragic. Yeah, no, no, I think we just keep—we just need to keep trying, you know, we need to keep working and we need to include these people um, in the conversations as well. I mean, unfortunately, there's still a lot of consumers that don't care or don't know that they could care and that they could find something that's different. I think when Pangaea was born as a material science company... The phone didn't just ring automatically a lot and people wanting new seaweed fiber or our incredible flower down, which is this um, replacement for goose and duck down that comes from um, a leftover product from flowers. Um, So we decided to make a brand, basically to showcase that it was possible to make attractive products and actually also to make a business model where you can sell sustainability where you can sell products that are simply better made but it comes down to the design and that's why you know we just we have to keep pushing and hoping that the best designers and the most creative businesses will still adapt and and make sure that consumers can have guilt-free shopping I was about to say but can actually still enjoy fashion because fashion is also fun and it shouldn't be dull or colorless or less creative it should it but we need to as an industry to make sure that consumers can actually access products that are simply better made and then of course there is this conversation that i think is probably the hardest one for everyone to have in this industry and that is how much more new do we need and if the Xiens and likes just keep pushing new products into the market on a daily basis or Yeah. Or even more often, you know, how do we then get consumers to think they don't need new constantly? Is there another way of consuming back to can we give shelf life for a product a little bit longer? Can we value what we have a little bit longer? Or should we simply look to circular business models, service models, rentals, resale, so that what is What might be new to you might not have been a new product because it might have been mine and you're buying mine. So it feels new to you, but it has had less impact because it's reused. So I think that, I mean, I think there's lots of opportunities. Um, And then the very difficult conversation, which is this, you know, how do we grow in value without necessarily growing in volume?
1: Which is such a difficult challenge in the way businesses are set up with growth as their (laughs) relentless growth as the goal right
2: completely and it's our it's how our societies are built we measure up uh, each other up against gdp it's all a growth assessment it's it's even in our language it's positive to grow right um so and we do need to figure out how do we shift that and think of growth and happiness they have a happiness index in bhutan instead of a GDP index. You know, I think maybe we need to look to other cultures. You know, I'm having now been in New Zealand and in Australia, you know, I'm quite impressed with how people in that region seems to appreciate nature more. And there's um, an appreciation of always about the indigenous cultures and the heritage of where you came from. And I think even that shows a different lens and view of the world that I think we've lost in many other parts of the world. And so if I, yeah, it's like when I said that regenerative is a new way of growing, it's an old way of growing. And you could also say circularity. Yay, great concept. People talk about circular economy. It's a big deal and a big concept. It's what indigenous cultures have done always. It's how they live in balance with nature, and nature has invented circularity long time ago. That's how everything is connected, um, that things become, and then they turn into something else, and it stays in an ecosystem. So I, I, there is things that we can learn if humans are just willing to listen.
1: What heartens you at the moment in the world of sustainable fashion and better practice? I mean, there are those big forces like the new fast fashion guard, Yeah, but then... There are, if you look back just 10 years, there are so many more choices, right, for making conscious fashion decisions. And there are many more ways for people to be mindful and aware of their impact with their choices, right?
2: There is, but we still have a long way to go. When we began the journey, we had about 1% organic cotton on the market. Guess what? In today's world, we have about 1% organic cotton on the market. Is that right? Yes. We've got more recycled fibers, and we, of course, have the regenerative on its way, but it's minimum quantities. But we've grown in volume, and that's the sad side. So we've just increased. It's a little bit like they say, oh, renewable energy is growing massively. Yes, but we haven't decreased in the use of fossil fuels. So we're just using more energy. And so we are on a growth trajectory globally in all industries and in the way our societies are set up, that is just on the wrong course. And we know that. Have, are you guys familiar with a concept called planetary boundaries? Tell us about it. It came from Professor Johan Rockström, and he's um, a, a Swedish scientist. And he said the planet has a budget. It has a budget every year of natural resources and ability to sequester and hold carbon and sort of, yeah, be in balance. And we're exceeding that budget on a yearly basis more and more and more. So there's a day of the year that they call it the overshoot day. And that date is, I think, in June now, and it's moving upwards. So it's it's becoming, you know, sooner and sooner in a year, we're exceeding the planetary budget. So at the moment, they say we use one and a half planet. In resources and if we continue like this we 're going to need three planets to keep to keep sustaining us so uh, that hardens me and it worries me that it does, it doesn't feel like we can stop the engine properly, and of course we're seeing more and more sort of global catastrophes and unfortunate um, you know, both um, nature catastrophes and and now also humanitarian ones with wars appearing everywhere. And it feels like the world is very uneasy. And I'm worried that we need to come to that extreme before people fully wake up and maybe consider some of their choices. And I wish that we had a sense of importance as individuals. For me, it just feels like because we have so much access to information, like you said, we have There's so many choices. We also get so much news and maybe also fake news and distorted news. And so it's so difficult to navigate. And I think if we're overloaded with information, it can also make us a little bit um, sort of hopeless. It's overwhelming. And that hopelessness, I think, unfortunately for many people, makes them more paralyzed than active. They go, what does it matter, you know? I'm just a little fish in the pond, you know, what does it matter what I do, you know, I might as well just continue like I used to, maybe I don't recycle, what does it matter if I do that, what does it matter if I buy organic, you know, and, and people become, also in times of recession, and things that are uneasy in the world, and people are maybe afraid, you know, they, people pull in, they shudder themselves, and, and that's the least we should do, we should get out there and get together. Because I think when we're together, we feel that collectiveness and that we're not alone and we're all in it together. And I think that's what we need to come back to that stage. When I was um, a young girl growing up in the 70s and 80s in Denmark, my dad my dad wanted me to go into a climate march. No, it wasn't a climate march. It was a nuclear weapon <laughs> against nuclear power um, in the 80s. And I said, oh, I don't want to go as a teenager. And he said... What if everybody said that? So I put on my shoes and I went with him. And I think it's where we need to get back to. We need to get back to that sense of it actually does matter what you do. Because what if everybody said, what does it matter? And even the little things will count. The little choices we make on a daily basis, what you spend your money on, what you spend your time on, what you say, but really where you spend your money, of course, also who you vote for. But I think in today's world, almost by where you spend your money and what you do with product, how you care for things, your respect for the resources that went into it, the externalities, the cost it had for the river, the field, the forest, the worker, just having that thought about everything we use instead of just blindly going into the grocery store and just pulling things down from the shelf and think, the cucumber came out, came out of nowhere. It didn't. It came from somewhere and somebody grew it and maybe there was even a pollinator involved. Maybe, you know, there was human hands. Maybe there was, a, a, there was soil that was extracted. There was a plant. There was sun, there was you know. So there's just so many things that goes into each and everything that we use. And I think, yeah, if we could come back to like a f- sense of, yeah, individual power, that would make t- matter a whole lot.
1: Yeah, I I love that. And I I, I think that's so true, right, that people do feel overwhelmed and then they think, well, it doesn't matter, you know, just do the terrible things. But when you make things tangible and real, and that's what I love about the work that you're doing at Pangaea, where you know, with the work around bees and pollination that you're doing. And Mm -hmm. I think so often in sustainability chat with fashion and clothes, you know, people are like, oh, you know, it's carbon zero and we saved this many kilograms of um, embodied carbon or whatever. And I think those are very valuable ideas, but they're quite abstract, right? Yeah. But when you actually bring it down to things that are real to people, like supporting and helping the health of, of bees, tell us about your work there.
2: Yeah. Thank you for a good segue into that. So, Um, Just to zoom out and explain why. So at Pangaea, biodiversity is part of our sustainability strategy. We call it one of our impact pillars. But biodiversity is a really abstract concept. We did a little bit of analysis on it. We did some social listening. So you can basically listen to what's being talked about on different social media platforms. We could see that climate change is a topic that's mentioned a lot. People talk a lot about it, had a lot of traction. And then when we looked at biodiversity, it had nothing. People don't talk about it. And then we thought, okay, why is that? Why do people not talk about biodiversity? And I also remember when I was heading up the global fashion agenda, we tried to put it on our stage a couple of times. It didn't really have much traction. And even with an industry that actually has a lot to do with biodiversity, because fashion is a lot of, you know, made from products that comes from nature, a lot of them. And then we thought, okay, how can we make biodiversity more relatable? what if we call it nature, but nature is still a very big concept. What about nature do you mean? How does that relate to me? And then we thought, could there be anyone from nature that could sort of serve as the ambassador, the poster child? Um, And there we thought about the pollinators and in particular, the bees as the sort of most famous of the pollinator group, but all of the pollinators are equally important um, to the diversity and to keeping us all alive. And then we tested the theory with a lot of scientists, and we said, What if we made the bees and the pollinators the the ambassador, sort of, and, and getting by telling the story of the beautiful work that these little creatures do for us, we can tell the story about the ecosystem in which we're all dependent and where humans will not be far behind if all the bees and pollinators decline. And that's what we're doing right now. So we're actually currently speaking to other businesses and getting them on board with us to create a massive global campaign called Be the Change. So be with a double E. <laughs> and we're launching a new nature documentary. And we're going to go live in May, World B Day, which is May 20. Um, and hopefully over the next six years, our aim is to reach two billion people not just with the social media post, but actually reach them in the way that I described before and getting them to understand that what they do matters and that they can help bring back our nature and more balance by helping support um, biodiversity and bees and pollinators by planting wildflowers, moving away from pesticides. You know, it will help human health, connectivity. It helps communities, we will have better food crops. You know, so it has so many effects on human lives to have this focus. And I think it's a, to your point as well, about how CO2 emissions feels abstract and it's sort of fluffy and airy, right? (laughs) In every way, Um, you know, this feels more tangible and these are living creatures. And it is actually a climate agenda as well, because if we unlock nature's potential to help us on the climate change quest, it can actually represent a third of the solution. So But not if we keep torturing nature the way we do. So focusing on all the steps that we need to take to preserve the pollinators, we can actually help unlock a lot of the nature, you know, ability to help us mitigate climate.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I love the idea that, you know, people can do things themselves, you know, rip up your uh, lawn and instead replace it it with wildflowers. And then you don't use any... Petrol and emissions and these terribly tuned engines and lawnmowers. Yeah. And then you create little islands for bees. And, like, anyone can do that. It doesn't take COP29.
2: No, exactly. (laughs) You you can help the pollinators. Exactly. And you have have your Sunday to yourself. You don't have to mow your lawn. Yeah. Love (laughs) it. And as a final thought,
1: Eva, what will success be for you? And what will success be for your work in sustainable fashion?
2: I think success for me professionally and for the work is the same, right? You know, I really want to achieve positive change and progress. I'm a stubborn optimist. So even if I sometimes look back at the many years that went with the fashion industry and I think, oh my God, we've come nowhere, then Shane, ain't, pops up and, you know, others. I do think we've come some way and yeah, evolution just takes a long time. And, um, and i do still believe in humans and humans capacity to actually make the changes that are needed so yeah i yeah i'm i'm just going to cling on to my stubborn optimism and 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 still be hopeful that that we can make it on a personal level i think i i do need to work a little less and that's the problem when you're very passionate about what you do and when you, you sort of wake up in the morning and think i need to save the planet i need to save the bees to save humanity and then you still have a lovely family that um, that also needs you so if yeah if i could if i could choose i would fundraise some more money so we could be a bigger team <laughs> and so there'll be a little bit of time for me to also be with my family
1: oh lovely well thank you so much for Sharing your story and the work you do, and we will let you escape into the night. <laughs> thank you for being so generous uh, no, with your time. Uh, that's Eva Cruz of Pangaea. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening.
1: So, thank you to Eva. Thank you to you for listening, and for everyone who helps make this possible, like our producer Te Ai Hei Butler. Please do rate and leave a review if you like what we do in e Nohora.
0: from the spin-off podcast network that was business is boring brought to you by SparkLab make sure you're following business is boring wherever you get your podcasts and for more information on sparklab visit sparklab.co.nz